Well, we continue in the, the book of Romans here this week. And if you remember uh, late last month, and how could you not? It was all over the headlines, uh, that implosion of the Titan submersible. And you might have seen a story that came out shortly after uh, the implosion uh, from a YouTube star named Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast was actually a, a headline on CNN uh, yesterday. I had written the illustration earlier in the week, and then I saw that he was on the headline. So if I'm ever gone, I'll just say this ahead of time, if I'm ever gone on a particular Sunday, go to YouTube, see, maybe I'm on there. I'm a subscriber to Mr. Beast. Maybe I'll be on his show trying to win some cash. But he shared that he had been invited to join that ill-fated voyage, but turned down the offer. The sentiment expresses, am I gone now? Did YouTube shut me off? <laughs> Does this one work? Does anything work? Yeah. Am I back? Yeah. Wow, Mr. Beast is powerful. He shares a sentiment. Am I? Am I there? Okay, good. So he shares. A, he shares a sentiment on. Should I keep going or should I stop? There's a guy in the back going. You should just stop now. <laughs> All right, so we're going to use the white one. All right, here we go. I got two mics on. You have to guess which one works. <laughs> he shares a sentiment on Twitter about the experience of, of having been invited to that ill-fated uh, submersible. And, and he shares something that I think a lot of us would, would join him in. We would, we would say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'd probably say the same thing if I was in this situation. He simply writes, kind of scary that I could, could, I could have been on it. That's an understatement. And how many times do we have in life, we have experiences like that, where we come to a fork in the road and a decision is made, and then in hindsight, we look back and we realize, like Robert Frost says, it makes all the difference, that road that we traveled down. I remember in college, uh, shortly before I graduated, actually, I applied for a position to teach overseas. And then the interview went really well, and I was given an offer to go and teach. And it turned out that I had to start on July 1st, but I'd already made a commitment to a local camp to serve as their program leader, and so I turned down the offer. Well, had I gone on that two-year uh, working overseas to teach, I wouldn't have worked at the first Presbyterian church I served in, so I probably wouldn't be a Presbyterian minister here today. I wouldn't have met my wife, who I met in that congregation. And how different you look back at your story and say, how your story would have been different? I know we all have stories like that, where we see an event that could have changed uh, the trajectory or even the outcome of our lives. And of course, there are a lot of examples of these potentially life-altering, and in case of Mr. Beast, possibly a life-ending event, when for reasons easily explained and others that, that cannot be explained at all end up averting a potentially untimely demise or maybe even rewrite a complete different direction than we might have ex experienced or expected for our lives. Of course, the death ones are extreme. That's an extreme example. But these we might term as the events that shape our lives. Romans 8 is a, in a, talks about and it presumes right from the get-go an event that shapes our lives. At least it's supposed to shape our lives. It puts a picture in front of us and draws our attention to that event that happens not within our lives initially, but is something that has happened outside of ourselves. And it absolutely transforms us. The consequence of this event is so extraordinary. It's so life-giving that the description that we see in Romans 8 is so wonderfully beautiful, have I built it up enough for you yet? That a pastor and theologian who teaches, I believe he's a pastor in South Carolina and he teaches at Reformed Theological Seminary, Derek Thomas calls this chapter of Romans the best chapter 
in the entire Bible. Now think about that for a moment. That's big. We're going to spend three weeks in this chapter. I spent one week with N.T. Wright on this one chapter. So you could spend a lot of time unpacking this. You could geek out on this one big time. We're not going to geek out. We're going to celebrate what we hear here in this text. Remember last week's question? Remember that question from Romans chapter 7? Who will rescue me from this body of death? That question that's asked by the confessor there in Romans 7.24. It's a question, but it's also an assessment of the dire predicament in which the confessor finds himself. It's not a good place, but you'll recall that right alongside that desperate plea, right alongside that question that's, that spews out of this person, comes this in verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We talked about how Paul lets it rip at that point. He just, it just kind of shoots out of him, even as he's kind of spinning down in, in what we would say is, is kind of a, a dire negative type situation. And it probably has something to do with what Paul is holding in mind when he's getting ready to write chapter eight. So as chapter seven's coming out of him, he knows what's coming in chapter eight. And he sees that in his mind, that in the face of a most certain death sentence, and that goes back to chapter six, to a people who are enslaved to the power of sin, chapter seven, an altogether different verdict comes from the lawgiver, the judge, the jury, and executioner. A completely different verdict will come out in chapter eight. And that verdict is this, right in verse one, no condemnation, no death sentence. And that no is reinforced here in that text because in the Greek, the very first word of the sentence is no right off from the top, right at the very beginning. How different is our experience with one another in life than what we hear of the beauty of that one statement from the beginning of chapter eight. I was reading an interview with Brennan Manning from the October, November issue in 1986 of the Wittenberg Door. Uh, you guys remember that, the Door magazine? Does anyone remember that? I just found out it's coming back, so you can look forward to that. But Brendan Manning is interviewed and he talks about, and this is at the time, to know this context, Manning is a Franciscan monk at the time when this happens. He says, in April of 1975, I was a full-fledged alcoholic. I was drinking a quart of vodka a day. I was overwhelmed by loneliness and failure in ministry. I woke up April 1st, 1975 in a doorway on Commercial Boulevard, 100 yards off the beach in Fort Lauderdale. I was in an alcoholic fog with vomit all over my sweater staring down at my bare feet, wondering what happened to my shoes, not knowing a wino had stolen them during the night. An attractive woman passed by with her four-year-old son. The boy broke loose from his mother's grip, ran over and stared down at me. His mother came up quickly behind him, cupped her hand over his eyes and said, don't look at that filth, he's just pure filth. And then she spit on me. Talk about being condemned. Talk about the verdict coming in, and it's not a good one. Manning would go on to say, 11 years ago, that was Brennan Manning. And maybe you know the feeling, condemned in the moment by a situation or a circumstance, unable to change course, and then being cut to ribbons by the words of others, finished off by your own self-flagellation, but the gospel offers an entirely different voice, and that's what we hear in chapter eight, right in verse one, right from the beginning. Not words of condemnation, but rather this, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And like that scene from the movie, The Wizard of Oz. You know that movie, right? Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Lion, Scarecrow, arm in arm with Toto running alongside. They're dancing down the yellow brick road and they're singing because, 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 right? And everything's joyous. But that because is there for a reason. It explains why they're going to go see the wizard. And here in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, we see Paul's because. He says the no condemnation part in verse 1, here's the because for that. There's no condemnation because something has happened. Something has transpired. That event that's outside ourselves that now gives shape to our lives and which renders an altogether different way forward, the one that gives us that unexpected verdict, that one is from God. That God renders a different type of action on our behalf. To those who are unable to be the people who live perfectly obedient to the law, God does it for us in Jesus Christ and applies it to us by the Holy Spirit. And look what happens in what our text says in verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. The hope of the law is that we might have life, that we might choose life, that we might live into that inheritance that God has for us. We see that at the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 30 of that book. We see that in Joshua 24. But instead of choosing life, instead of ex ex uh, seeking after obedience, we, like our foreparents, continually to seek rebellion and wickedness. We show where our hearts are actually at. But what happens is God looks at the depth of our own depravity and makes something clear to us that our misguided selves is not where God leaves us, but rather God creates a way. Look what God has done in the second part of verse 3. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but there is condemnation for this. Sin is condemned. The power of sin is broken. That's who gets the death sentence, the sin that's hanging over us and holding us back. The thing that's keeping us from being those people that God desires us and wants us to be. The people that God makes us to be, transforms us. If you're hearing in all that, God doing all the work, all the heavy lifting, you're hearing correctly. If you're hearing in that, some sort of personal condemnation say that you need to step up to the plate and do better and act better and be better. You're missing Paul's point altogether. That God's love for us transforms us. We're justified, so now we can go and live a holy life in gratitude to God, not we live a holy life so that we can be justified. That's where no condemnation steps in here and changes our, our future. And how does God accomplish that? Well, look at Jesus, the one who lived a life obedient to the law, the one who made a way for that to be possible. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 4, 1 Peter chapter 2, all places that talk about Jesus living the obedient life. And that faithfulness is then applied to us who are in Christ. Now, bird enthusiasts, I heard this, this last week, I've become a bird enthusiast in the last uh, couple of years. Don't ask me any bird questions, though, because I'm, I'm one of those guys, like, if you ask them about a book, like, hey, what's that book called? I can't tell you what it's called. I can't even tell you who wrote it. I can tell you the color of the cover and stuff so some of you are, might be like that or you ask for directions and I'm like turn left at the big rock that kind of thing 
And so what happens is I got into birds and I don't remember how I got into them. We were trying to, we were talking about in, in our home about, we we're trying to figure it out. Like when, when was it that I got into birds? And just in the last couple of years, we put in bird feeders and we have a little uh, chart that interprets them, which ones we're looking at. And my oldest daughter and I will go out and we'll identify different birds and say, oh, that's a, a Jimco that's over there. Like, it's nerdy, right? Okay, just, just admit it, it's kind of nerdy. But bird enthusiasts uh, talk about, they have a term actually for the one that becomes awakened towards becoming an avid bird watcher. And they call this the spark bird, the spark bird. That, that bird that you see, that suddenly now you're all excited about seeing birds. Right? There's whatever that bird you saw. So we were trying to figure out what my spark bird was, and we couldn't figure it out. We're not sure. But now I have it. I got the bug, or I got the bird, if you will. And so what happens is bird watchers tell the story. They give their testimony, so to speak, of that early encounter, that first bird, that set them on their present course of enjoying that hobby of looking at birds. Well, if the event in Jesus is faithful life, if that's the event, his death, his resurrection, his triumph. That's the event that Paul envisages here as, as changing us and creating the context for our transformation. The spirit then, if we read the rest of Romans 8 here, is the spark bird. Now, what an appropriate way to think about it is think about the spirit descending like a dove. But it becomes the spark bird that, that transforms us and sets us on that new course, awakens for us the new life and applies the benefits of what God has achieved in Christ to us personally and continually. Now, if I were to reference a storyline here for you this morning, this is going to take a little thinking for you here, that includes a battle against evil, right? A figure who loses a hand in the struggle, and a key moment, the identity of one's father becomes clear, right? If I give you those three pointers, we're talking about the Sermon on the Mount, right? No, no, it's the Empire Strikes Back, right? Think about it, it works for both. But the Empire Strikes Back, right? Episode uh, five of the Star Wars franchise. Or as people my age, around my age and older, the second movie, all right? But this picture of an empire striking back is an apt one. And it challenges a question that we might have as we read Romans 8, where we go, you know, there's no condemnation. I hear that. The Spirit's alive in me and, and moving me towards a place of transformation to live a different life. Gives me the power over sin. Has canceled that, that sin's power. Has taken me out of that enslavement. But how come I keep doing stupid stuff? How come my heart still plays around with, with sin and I, I mess around in cruddy areas and I think wickedness and I'm a gossip and I do all this stuff still? How come that's still happening if there's some kind of victory that's been had here? And I think this Empire Strikes Back creates a good picture for us to imagine and to see what's happening here for us in the Christian life. No, we're not going to get lightsabers and go at it or laser blasters or cut open a tauntaun or anything like that. So it's not that. But rather for us to see that our lives in this world are lives where there's been a displacement of the power of sin in our lives. But that displaced tyrant is continually trying to work its way back into the castle. That castle's throne is now occupied, though, by the Holy Spirit. The triune God is now present in your lives, and so the, it's not God's not giving back that throne. You've been claimed. You're God's own. You are now kingdom territory. But the evil one continually wants to bombard us and continually challenge us to get back on that throne. And we have to keep swatting and fighting it back. And we do so with God's love and God's power and God's grace. The little hints that we see along the way 
are reminders that God is on the throne. Glimpses of what the future holds for us when we be done with that evil one forever. Mary Hinkle Shore uh, writes, in case uh, we might be challenged to say, well, wait a second, I think sin's still in charge. She actually draws out five different places here in our text where we are reminded by Paul once more that sin is no longer the power in our lives. She writes, Paul announces that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There's victory number one. That's verse two. Paul describes himself as readers as those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's victory number two. That's verse four. Verse nine, after Paul has described the hostility of the flesh toward God, Paul declares, but you are not in the flesh, you are in the spirit, since the spirit of God dwells in you. That's number three victory. Verse 10, Paul uses the condition of fact to say, if Christ is in you, and Christ is, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. These are all places where sin's been displaced, has been kicked off the throne. The fifth victory in verse 11. That conditional clause is one of certainty. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and it does. The one who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also. Paul's shift to the future tense leads some commentators to believe Paul refers here to the future resurrection of the bodies of those who have died in Christ. But the emphasis need not be exclusively on the last day. In the rest of the chapter, the immediate future is Paul's concern. And so we see victory here in this life and in the life to come. And so we can sing, as the old song says, that when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And as the song goes, that last one's a, a real gold nugget because it comes twice. To look on him who pardons me. John Calvin writes in the Institutes that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. But praise be to God, we don't stand outside of Christ and Christ is not outside of us. That this morning, that if you are in Christ, that you enjoy the benefits that Paul outlines for us here just in the first part of Romans chapter 8. And if you're not in Christ this morning, if you're not following Christ, perhaps this moment is the key event in your life, that crossroads for you to now step into a new journey, a new walk. The spark bird is speaking to you this morning, sparking in your heart a sense of new life, transformation, to walk in the way of Jesus and to know that future of faith and hope and assurance that you can have, not only for the future, but here in the present, that you can enjoy the life that refreshes and renews throughout our entire lives. Returning to that interview with Brennan Manning, and I close with this, I just love this quote that comes from that, that interview. And what it is, it's Manning is actually quoting a quote that he heard from another guy who heard it from another guy. All right, you got that? So it's like a third-hand quote is what it is. So Manning quotes his spiritual director who says he heard this from an old evangelical preacher in Georgia. It'll all make sense in a moment here. Be who you is, because if you ain't who you is, you is who you ain't.
Think about that for a moment. Be who you is, because if you ain't who you is, you is who you ain't. Sisters and brothers in Christ, there's no condemnation for you because you are in Christ. So be those people. Be those people who've been transformed by God's love and God's grace. Step into that place where you might live and embody God's love as a grateful response, but also as an extension of one who is part of the kingdom that lives within you and goes before you. May we have that experience each and every day of our lives, this day and forevermore. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love this morning and that love that's been shown to us, that's been poured into our hearts, that's been poured into our lives. So we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that Christ's faithfulness is applied to us, but we thank you that Jesus Christ's faithfulness is a certainty, has been shown to be true, has been proven, his life, death, and vindicated in his resurrection and triumph. So Lord, as we offer our lives once more to you, we do so as grateful response to you, the one who calls us to new life, the one who prepares us for new life, the one who gives us new life. And we are grateful all the more. Walk with us, Lord, as we walk with you. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.